Section 33 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume Volume 1b, Section 33, Chapter 17, Part 1 Richard II The Parliament which was summoned soon after the King's accession was both elected and assembled in tranquillity and the great change, from a sovereign of consummate wisdom and experience, to a boy of eleven years of age, was not immediately felt by the people. The habits of order and obedience which the barons had been taught during the long reign of Edward still influenced them, and the authority of the king's three uncles, the dukes of Lancaster, York, and Gloucester, sufficed to repress, for a time, the turbulent spirit to which that order, in a weak reign, was so often subject. The dangerous ambition, too, of these princes themselves was checked by the plain and undeniable title of Richard, by the declaration of it made in Parliament, and by the affectionate regard which the people bore to the memory of his father, and which was naturally transferred to the young sovereign upon the throne. The different characters also of these three princes rendered them a counterpoise to each other, and it was natural to expect that any dangerous designs which might be formed by one brother would meet with opposition from the others. Lancaster, whose age and experience and authority under the late king gave him the ascendant among them, though his integrity seemed not proof against great temptations, was neither of an enterprising spirit nor of a popular and engaging temper. York was indolent, inactive, and of slender capacity. Gloucester was turbulent, bold, and popular but being the youngest of the family, was restrained by the power and authority of his elder brothers. There appeared, therefore, no circumstance in the domestic situation of England which might endanger the public peace, or give any immediate apprehensions to the lovers of their country. But as Edward, though he had fixed the secession to the crown, had taken no care to establish a plan of government during the minority of his grandson, it behooved the Parliament to supply this defect, and the House of Commons distinguished themselves by taking the lead on the occasion. This House, which had been rising to consideration during the whole course of the late reign, naturally received an accession of power during the minority, and as it was now becoming a scene of business, the members chose for the first time a speaker, who might preserve order in their debates, and maintain those forms which are requisite in all numerous assembles. Peter de la Mare was the man pitched on, the same person that had been imprisoned and detained in custody by the late king for his freedom of speech in attacking the mistress and the ministers of that prince. But though this election discovered a spirit of liberty in the commons, and was followed by further attacks both on these ministers and on Alice Pierce, they were still too sensible of their great inferiority to assume at first any immediate share in the administration of government or the care of the king's person. They were content to apply by petition to the lords for that purpose, and desire them both to appoint a council of nine who might direct the public business, and to choose men of virtuous life and conversation who might inspect the conduct and education of the young prince. 
the lords complied with the first part of this request and elected the bishops of london carlisle and salisbury the earls of marche and stafford sir richard de stafford sir henry lescrope sir john devereux and sir hugh seagrave to whom they gave authority for a year to conduct the ordinary course of business but as to the regulation of the king's household they declined interposing in an office which they said both was invidious in itself and might prove disagreeable to his majesty the commons as they acquired more courage ventured to proceed a step further in their applications they presented a petition in which they prayed the king to check the prevailing custom among the barons of forming illegal confederacies and supporting each other as well as men of inferior rank in the violations of law and justice they received from the throne a general and an obliging answer to this petition but another part of their application that all the great officers should during the king's minority be appointed by parliament which seemed to require the concurrence of the commons as well as that of the upper house in the nomination was not complied with the lords alone assumed the power of appointing these officers the commons tacitly acquiesced to the choice and thought that for the present they themselves had proceeded a sufficient length if they but advanced their pretensions though rejected of interposing in these more important matters of state on this footing then the government stood the administration was conducted entirely in the king's name no regency was expressly appointed the nine councillors and the great officers named by their peers did their duties each in his respective department and the whole system was for some years kept together by the secret authority of the king's three uncles especially the duke of lancaster who was in reality the regent the parliament was dissolved after the commons had represented the necessity of their being reassembled once every year as appointed by law and after having elected two citizens as their treasurers to receive and disperse the produce of two fifteenths and tenths which they had voted to the crown in the other parliaments called during the minority the commons still discover a strong spirit of freedom and a sense of their own authority which without breeding any disturbance tended to secure their independence and that of the people edward had left his grandson involved in many dangerous wars the pretensions of the duke of lancaster to the crown of castile made that kingdom still persevere in hostilities against england scotland whose throne was now filled by robert stuart nephew to david bruce and the first prince of that family maintained such close connections with france that war with one crown almost inevitably produced hostilities with the other the french monarch whose prudent conduct had acquired him the surname of wise as he had already baffled all the experience and valor of the two edwards was likely to prove a dangerous enemy to a minor king but his genius which was not naturally enterprising led him not at present to give any disturbance to his neighbors and he labored besides under many difficulties at home which it was necessary for him to surmount before he could think of making conquests in a foreign country england was master of calais bordeaux and bayonne and had lately acquired possession of cherbourg from the secession of the king of navarre and of brest from that of the duke of brittany and having thus an easy entrance into france from every quarter was able even in its present situation to give disturbance to his government before charles could remove the english from these important posts he died in the flower of his age and left his kingdom to a minor son who bore the name of charles the sixth 
Meanwhile, the war with France was carried on in a manner somewhat languid, and produced no enterprise of great luster or renown. Sir Hugh Calvary, governor of Calais, making an inroad into Picardy with a detachment of the garrison, set fire to Boulogne. The Duke of Lancaster conducted an army into Brittany, but returned without being able to perform anything memorable. In a subsequent year, the Duke of Gloucester marched out of Calais with a body of 2,000 cavalry and 8,000 infantry, and scrupled not with his small army to enter into the heart of France, and to continue his ravages through Picardy, Champagne, the Brie, the Beuse, the Gatinois, the Orleanois, till he reached his allies in the province of Brittany. The Duke of Burgundy, at the head of a more considerable army, came within sight of him. But the French were so overawed by the former successes of the English that no superiority of numbers could tempt them to venture a pitched battle with the troops of that nation. As the Duke of Brittany, soon after the arrival of these succors, formed an accommodation with the court of France, this enterprise also proved in the issue unsuccessful and made no durable impression upon the enemy. The expenses of these armaments, and the usual want of economy attending a minority, much exhausted the English treasury, and obliged the Parliament, besides making some alterations in the council, to impose a new and unusual tax of three groats on every person, male and female, above fifteen years of age. And they ordained that, in levying that tax, the opulent should relieve the poor by an equitable compensation. This imposition produced a mutiny, which was singular in its circumstances. All history abounds with examples where the great tyrannize over the meaner sort, but here the lowest populace rose against their rulers, committed the most cruel ravages upon them, and took vengeance for all former oppressions. The faint dawn of the arts and of good government in that age had excited the minds of the populace in different states of Europe to wish for a better condition, and to murmur against those chains which the laws enacted by the haughty nobility and gentry had so long imposed upon them. The commotions of the people in Flanders and the mutiny of the peasants in France were the natural effects of this growing spirit of independence. And the report of these events being brought into England, where personal slavery, as we learn from Froissart, was more general than in any other country in Europe, had prepared the minds of the multitude for an insurrection. One John Ball, also a seditious preacher, who affected low popularity, went about the country and inculcated on his audience the principles of the first origin of mankind from one of common stock, their equal right to liberty and to all the goods of nature, the tyranny of artificial distinctions, and the abuses which had arisen from the degradation of the more considerable part of the species and the aggrandizement of a few insolent rulers. These doctrines, so agreeable to the populace, and so conformable to the ideas of primitive equality which are engraven in the hearts of all men, were greedily received by the multitude, and scattered the sparks of that sedition which the present text raised into conflagration. The imposition of three groats ahead had been farmed out to tax-gatherers in each county, who levied the money on the people with rigor, and the clause of making the rich ease their poor neighbors of some share of the burden, being so vague and undeterminate, had doubtless occasioned many partialities, and made the people more sensible of the unequal lot which fortune had assigned them in the distribution of her favors. The first disorder was raised by a blacksmith in the village of Essex. 
The tax-gatherers came to this man's shop while he was at work, and they demanded payment for his daughter, whom he asserted to be below the age assigned by the statute. One of these fellows offered to produce a very indecent proof to the contrary, and at the same time laid hold of the maid, which the father resenting immediately knocked out the ruffian's brains with his hammer. The bystanders applauded the action, and exclaimed that it was time for the people to take vengeance on their tyrants, and to vindicate their native liberty. They immediately flew to arms, the whole neighborhood joined in the sedition. The flame spread in an instant over the country. It soon propagated itself into that of Kent, of Hartford, Surrey, Sussex, Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridge, and Lincoln. Before the government had the least warning of the danger, the disorder had grown beyond control or opposition. The populace had shaken off all regard to their former masters, and being headed by the most audacious and criminal of their associates, who assumed the feigned names of Watt Tyler, Jack Straw, Hob Carter, and Tom Miller, by which they were fond of denoting their mean origin. They committed everywhere the most outrageous violence on such of the gentry or nobility as had the misfortune to fall into their hands. The mutinous populace, amounting to a hundred thousand men, assembled on Blackheath under their leaders, Tyler and Straw, and as the Princess of Wales, the king's mother, returning from a pilgrimage to Canterbury, passed through the midst of them, they insulted her attendants, and some of the most insolent among them, to show their purpose of leveling all mankind, forced kisses from her, but they allowed her to continue her journey without attempting any further injury. They sent a message to the king, who had taken shelter in the tower, and they desired a conference with him. Richard sailed down the river in a barge for that purpose, but on his approaching the shore he saw such symptoms of tumult and insolence that he put back and returned to that fortress. The seditious peasants, meanwhile, favored by the populace of London, had broken into the city, had burned the Duke of Lancaster's palace of the Savoy, cut off the heads of all the gentlemen whom they laid hold of, expressed a particular animosity against the lawyers and attorneys, and pillaged the warehouses of the rich merchants. A great body of them quartered themselves at Mile End, and the king, finding no defense in the tower, which was weakly garrisoned and ill-supplied with provisions, was obliged to go out to them and ask their demands. They required a general pardon, the abolition of slavery, freedom of commerce in market towns without toll or impost, and a fixed rent on lands, instead of the services due by villainage. These requests, which though extremely reasonable in themselves, the nation was not sufficiently prepared to receive, and which it was dangerous to have extorted by violence, were, however, complied with. Charters to that purpose were granted them, and this body immediately dispersed and returned to their several homes. During this transaction, another body of the rebels had broken into the tower, had murdered Simon Sudbury, the primate and chancellor, with Sir Richard Hales, the treasurer, and some other persons of distinction, and continued their ravages in the city. The king, passing along Smithfield, very slenderly guarded, met with Watt Tyler at the head of these rioters, and entered into a conference with him. Tyler, having ordered his companions to retire till he should give them a signal, after which they were to murder all the company except the king himself, whom they were to detain prisoner, feared not to come into the midst of the royal retinue. He there behaved himself in such a manner that Walworth, the mayor of London, not able to bear his insolence, 
drew his sword, and struck him so violent a blow as brought him to the ground, where he was instantly dispatched by others of the king's attendants. The mutineers, seeing their leader fall, prepared themselves for revenge, and this whole company, with the king himself, had undoubtedly perished on the spot, had it not been for an extraordinary presence of mind which Richard discovered on the occasion. He ordered his company to stop, he advanced alone toward the enraged multitude, and accosting them with an affable and intrepid countenance, he asked them, What is the meaning of this disorder, my good people? Are ye angry that ye have lost your leader? I am your king, I will be your leader. The populace, overawed by his presence, implicitly followed him. He led them into the fields to prevent any disorder which might have arisen by their continuing in the city. Being there joined by Sir Robert Knowles and a body of well-armed veteran soldiers who had been secretly drawn together, he strictly prohibited that officer from falling on the rioters and committing an undistinguished slaughter upon them, and he peaceably dismissed them with the same charters which had been granted to their fellows. Soon after, the nobility and gentry, hearing of the king's danger, in which they were all involved, flocked to London with their adherents and retainers and Richard took the field at the head of an army forty thousand strong. It then behooved all the rebels to submit. The charters of enfranchisement and pardon were revoked by Parliament, the low people were reduced to the same slavish condition as before, and several of the ringleaders were severely punished for the late disorders. Some were even executed without process or form of law. It was pretended that the intentions of the mutineers had been to seize the king's person, to carry him through England at their head, to murder all the nobility, gentry, and lawyers, and even all the bishops and priests, except the mendicant friars, to dispatch afterwards the king himself, and, having thus reduced all to a level, to order the kingdom at their pleasure. It is not impossible, but many of them, in the delirium of their first success, might have formed such projects. But of all the evils incident to human society, the insurrections of the populace, when not raised and supported by persons of higher quality, are the least to be dreaded. The mischiefs consequent to an abolition of all rank and distinction become so great that they are immediately felt, and soon bring affairs back to their former order and arrangement. A youth of sixteen, which was at this time the king's age, who had discovered so much courage, presence of mind, and address, and had so dexterously eluded the violence of this tumult, raised great expectations in the nation, and it was natural to hope that he would, in the course of his life, equal the glories which had so uniformly attended his father and his grandfather in all their undertakings. But in proportion as Richard advanced in years, these hopes vanished, and his want of capacity, at least of solid judgment, appeared in every enterprise which he attempted. The Scots, sensible of their own deficiency in cavalry, had applied to the regency of Charles the Sixth and John de Vienne, Admiral of France, had been sent over with a body of 1,500 men-at-arms to support them in their incursions against the English. The danger was now deemed by the king's uncles somewhat serious, and a numerous army of 60,000 men was levied, and they marched into Scotland with Richard himself at their head. The Scots did not pretend to make resistance against so great a force. They abandoned without scruple their country to be pillaged and destroyed by the enemy, and when de Vienne expressed his surprise at this plan of operations, they told him that all their cattle was driven into the forests and the fastnesses, 
that their houses and other goods were of small value, and that they well knew how to compensate any losses which they might sustain in that respect by making an incursion into England. Accordingly, when Richard entered Scotland by Berwick and the East Coast, the Scots, to the number of thirty thousand men, attended by the French, entered the borders of England by the West, and carrying their ravages through Cumberland, Westmoreland, and Lancashire, collected a rich booty, and then returned in tranquillity to their own country. Richard, meanwhile, advanced toward Edinburgh, and destroyed in his way all the towns and villages on each side of him. He reduced that city to ashes. He treated in the same manner Perth, Dundee, and other places in the Low Countries. But when he was advised to march towards the west coast to await there the return of the enemy, and to take revenge on them for their devastations, his impatience to return to England and enjoy his usual pleasures and amusements outweighed every consideration, and he led back his army without effecting anything by all these mighty preparations. The Scots, soon after, finding the heavy bodies of French cavalry very useless in that desultory kind of war to which they confined themselves, treated their allies so ill that the French returned home, much disgusted with the country and with the manners of its inhabitants. And the English, though they regretted the indolence and levity of their king, saw themselves for the future secured against any dangerous invasion from that quarter. End of section 33 Chapter 17, Part 1. Recording by Emily, Boston, Massachusetts.